what we're doing this, this semester in particular is that we are going through what the Bible has to say about relationships. And tonight we come up to a topic that I know for many of you just haunts you. And it's the topic of singleness. It's the question of how do I know if, if I'll get married at all? What if I'm single the rest of my life? And I know that question is, is unbelievably loaded and unbelievably unsettling for a lot of you. And so uh, there's lots of places that we could look in the Bible, but we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight. It's all, it's all about marriage and it's all about singleness. And so we're going to look there and we're not going to read the whole chapter. It'd be way too long, even though it looks like the whole chapter's there. Um, but we are just going to look at just a kind of few excerpts and uh, work our way through the excerpts that are on your sheet. So you can follow along in a Bible if you have one or just follow along in a, in a handout. Which, by the way, does everyone hand, have a handout. We got, I think we have some extras in the back. If you don't, raise your hand and somebody will get you one. We got a hand over here. Jeremy, where's my man? Jeremy has left the building. There he is. We got one. Never mind. Grab a seat. <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 7 and kind of work our way through um, the excerpts that are here. This is uh, Paul writing. Uh, He says, I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. And similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves at men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, please pray with me before we look at it together, okay? Father, we would ask that you would be our teacher now. We would, we would ask that Holy Spirit would come and would open up our eyes and would unclog our ears, would soften our hearts so that we really would be able to see and hear that which is true and that which is beautiful and that which is right. And so that would be our prayer. Would you be our teacher because we really are 
uh, we're desperate. <laughs> we, I can't. I can't teach this uh, apart from your help, and they can't hear this apart from your help. So uh, we would ask for you to come now. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make two points tonight. Just two. I want, I want you to see from this passage that singleness is a calling and singleness is a gift. Those are the two things I want to look at. Singleness is a calling and singleness is a gift. Okay? Let's look at singleness being a calling. I know we read a lot just then, but if you look back at verse 17 through 24, Paul is basically saying this. You need to, to live your life in the context you were living when you became a Christian. In other words, he's saying some of you became Christians when you were lawyers, when you were mechanics, when you were housewives. And he's basically saying just because you're a Christian now doesn't mean you should quit your job and go do something else to serve the Lord. He's saying, no, it's actually in that context that you're to serve him. So, so look at verse 20. He's basically, I mean, this is a kind of a summary verse. He says, each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Now, does this mean that you can't change jobs? When you become a Christian and you're in a particular, you know, vocation? Well, no, of course not. This, this is the whole point of verses 21 through 24. He says, okay, well, what if you were a slave when you became a Christian? He says, well, that's okay. You can serve the Lord in that context. But if you look at verse uh, 21, he says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. And so the principle there is serve the Lord in the context to which he has called you, but, you know, you're not absolutely necessarily permanently bound to that particular context. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What in the world does this have to do with singleness? Well, if the passage, you know, as you look at the passage as it keeps going, Paul basically applies this principle not just to your job, but also to your marital status. And so he says in, in uh, verses 25 through 28 that basically the same thing. If, if you become a Christian when you are married, serve the Lord as a married person. If you become a Christian uh, when, when you were single, then serve the Lord as a single person. Does this mean you can't get married if you're single and you're a Christian? Well, no. He makes the same disclaimer in verse 28. He says if you're, if, if you're single and you get married, that's okay. You haven't sinned. You just have a new context to serve Jesus in. Here's what all of this basically means. Singleness is a calling. Singleness is a calling. If you are single, then this means that you have a responsibility to serve the Lord as a single person. And I personally think this is, this is actually really good news because if you live in the Christian subculture where a lot of us happen to find ourselves living in, there is a lot of pressure, if not just unarticulated assumptions that you need to get married. And if you don't, you are a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. You know, uh, my, my, my wife Catherine has this friend who, uh, in her 30s, when she was still in her 30s, uh, she would get this question all the time, you know, when she was uh, in church. They, you know, people would come up to her and say, you know, are you seeing somebody special? Or, you know, uh, why aren't you, you know, dating anybody? And there's just sort of this unarticulated assumption of that of, if you aren't married, something is wrong with you. And the thing that's really good about this passage is that it looks and it says, you don't have to be married to advance God's kingdom. Single people can advance God's kingdom. This is the context to which they are called. God calls you to love God and to love your neighbor. Single people can do that. You can actually do that. I think that's uh, actually really good news. But, of course, this raises the question in everybody's mind is, how do I know if I'm called to singleness? 
How do I know if I'm called to singleness or if I'm called to get married? And I think this is actually a really, this is a much easier question than you think it is. Because right now, most of the people in this room right now are single. And uh, biblically speaking, there are kind of two categories. You're either married or you're not married, which means single. I know some of you are dating each other. You're in dating relationships. Biblically speaking, you're called not married, single. So you're in the single category. So for most of the room, right now you are single. And this means that right now you are called to be single. Right now you are, you are called to be single. The, the Lord has basically put this context in your life of you are single right now and this is the framework with which you're supposed to live your life as a single person. But of course now you're wondering, okay, that's not the question I'm concerned about. The question is, how do I know if I'm called to lifelong singleness? And I know that that question for a lot of you really freaks you out and unsettles you. And it's a terrifying thought. I don't have the answer to that question, by the way. You may be called to lifelong singleness, though. But my hope is that as we, as we look at this, and my hope is that as you understand the gospel more and more, that you'll be okay with that possibility. That that won't be as unsettling and terrifying and, and freak you out as much as it does currently. That you'll grow actually more in your contentment as you grow in your understanding of the gospel. Singleness is a calling, but... Uh, if we know that singleness is a calling, this begins to confront two different lies that we want to believe. I just want to look at these lies one at a time. Here's the first lie. is that you can use singleness to indulge your selfishness. That singleness is basically an excuse for you to indulge your selfishness. You know, people who are independent, they're not tied down. They don't have anybody who has a claim to their money or their, you know, their resources or their time. They basically say, you know... This is me time. If I'm single, you know, I, if I'm not committed to anybody else, then I can be exclusively committed to me. And so I know that for some of you, relationships really, you look at relationships as a burden, that, that they're obstacles for you getting and receiving your goals. And so what I want you to basically see is that a, a life that when you say I'm exclusively committed to me and people just get in my way of that, this is just sinful self-absorption. It's just pure, unashamed narcissism. Now, my wife and I probably have about three or four television shows that we, like, <coughs> we don't miss. We have to watch these shows. And one of them is The Office. And um, uh, we're pro-Office. And uh, I think it was last season, it was last season, season six, it was whatever season, it was an episode from season six called The Chump. And it has this scene that's probably one of my favorite scenes in all of the office history. It's when Michael Scott, you know, he's the regional manager for this paper company, Dunder Mifflin. And Michael Scott is, is having an affair with a married woman. And you remember, he's, he's, you remember this scene where he's, he's dating this woman who has a husband. And everybody in the office is, is given a, a hard time for it. They're, you know, they're, they're fighting against him and basically saying, like, you need to end this. This is not okay. And he's pushing back and he's trying to justify and he's, he's making excuses. And after a while, he just stops pushing back. He stops, like, defending it and fighting it. And then he just embraces this lifestyle of all-out I don't care what other people think anymore. And here's what he says. He says, I am what I am, and I want what I want, and right now, I want a piece of cake. From now on, whenever I'm hungry, I'm going to eat whatever I'm hungry for. And he leaves the office, and he goes straight to the break room. And as he's leaving, you know, Kevin, the big guy, goes, that's a dangerous game, friendo. And... Um, <laughs> 
So Michael walks into the break room, and Kelly and Ryan are sitting in there talking. And, you know, Michael goes straight for the uh, fridge, pulls out some cake, and just starts, like, eating it with his hands. And uh, Kelly goes, that's Meredith's cake. It's her birthday. And he goes, I don't care. I have an appetite for life. And he reaches in with his hands, and he just starts eating it. And Ryan sees this. You remember this scene? Ryan sees this, and he starts getting inspired. And he goes... Good for you, man. Good for you. And you can tell he's kind of thinking and processing this sort of embracing of, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And he immediately stands up and he starts walking out of the break room and it cuts to this monologue where Ryan, you know, is looking in the camera and Ryan goes, uh, gosh, where is it? Good grief. Okay, here it is. Monologue. He looks, he looks at the camera and he says, he takes what he wants. And so the, the monologue switches and it goes back to him walking through the office and he goes right up to Aaron, who's the receptionist. And he says, you know what? I think you're attractive and I want to sleep with you. And she goes, is this a joke? And he goes, yep. And then turns and walks back to the break room. It's beautiful. And as he's walking back into the break room and Michael's eating the cake, he goes, man, it's hard to live that way, man. You've got to really not care what people think about you. I, I don't know how you do it, Michael. I can't be that cold. <laughs> it's this beautiful scene where, he, where even Ryan identifies something is messed up when you are living your life of I don't care what other pe- people think and I'm just going to do whatever I want. You know, people have studied this phenomenon called the happiness paradox. People have written about it, sociologists have written about the happiness paradox. And it's basically this idea that when you live your life committed to making yourself the most happy, you become the most miserable. If the premise of your life is to try to make you happy, you end up becoming miserable. And this is why. It's because God has basically built it into the fabric of the universe that you find your life when you lose your life. When you give your life away to the benefit of other people, you actually find yourself becoming more alive. And this means it does not matter if you are married or if you are single. If your life is devoted to indulging your selfishness, I can guarantee you, you will be miserable. And so the lie that we want to believe is, I'm single, I can be completely exclusively committed to me, and I just want to tell you, you're going to be miserable, and you're going to be what's wrong with the world. That's the first lie that we want to believe. Here's the second lie that we want to believe in in this context. That you have to be seriously dating someone or engaged by the end of college. Because I know that this is what some some of you think, is that I I have to be dating somebody seriously or engaged by the end of college. I I am seriously, uh, I feel the pressure, and some of you are just living to get that ring by spring. And um, (laughs) I know that you feel the pressure. That if 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 you graduate and you're not in a relationship or you're not engaged, then there's this feeling of there's no hope that I'll meet anybody else because this is where everybody is. And this is why some of you who are in dating relationships cannot break up a relationship that is destructive and unhealthy and terrible. This is why some of you cling to these types of relationships when you know it's unhealthy and everybody knows it's unhealthy. But the reason you won't let go is simply for one reason, fear. I am afraid that I will not find anybody else, especially as sort of graduation gets closer. And that's ultimately rooted in unbelief. Fear rooted in unbelief of, I don't trust that God really would have anything else and anybody else better for me than this, and so I'm just going to hold on as tight as I can. But when you really believe and see that singleness is a calling, 
where you are called to follow and to serve and to trust God in the context with which he has called you to, this, this frees you. You can end the bad relationship. You can, you can be freed to not feel all this pressure of, I've, I've got to find someone. You, you don't have to have that ring by spring. You don't have to have it. You can just live your life as someone who is loving God and loving your neighbor. And you're not constantly on the hunt trying to find somebody because, you know, the pressure is on. Singleness is a calling. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Believe it or not, the Bible says that singleness is a gift. That it's a gift. Look at verse 7, the first verse on your, on your handout. It says, I wish that all men were as I am, meaning single, unmarried, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Here's what he's saying. God gives different gifts to different people. To some people, he gives the gift of singleness. Some people, he gives the gift of marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Singleness seems like a really crappy gift. <laughs> I wish that he would return it and get his money back because this just doesn't seem like a good gift. Do you remember when you were younger and uh, you'd go to you know, little kids' birthday parties? You know, for me, i you know, go to these little boys' uh, birthday parties when I was young and uh, you'd see them you know, blowing out the candles. Everybody would kind of gather around. They'd blow out the candles of their cake and then they would you know, receive and open these like, awesome, amazing presents for their birthday. Like he's getting the G.I. Joe Command Center and the cap guns and Star Wars figures and you're just looking on with jealousy, like, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had the G.I. Joe Command Center. But you remember, when you go to little kids' parties, you leave with party favors. You know, you remember, you remember these? These little bags of basically kind of little knickknacks, and you'd have like a little kazoo in there, or like a miniature slinky, you know, some starbursts. But basically, you know, a, a bag of party favors compared to the G.I. Joe Command Center, that's a really crappy gift. <laughs> You know, and, and I think for a lot of people, um, uh, a lot of people who are single think that they have been given the crappy party favor in light of this amazing gift of marriage. And it feels unfair. But you know, actually, in an ironic way, there's lots of people that I know that are married that feel like they've been given the crappy party favor in light of the awesome gift of singleness. And it feels unfair for them. And so there really are people on both sides with the perspective of, I, have, I feel like I've gotten gypped out of this. And I want you to see from this passage, that is not true. God does not give bad gifts to his people. If you are single, he hasn't given you some second-rate crap gift. It is good. Singleness is a good gift. And the passage actually shows you why, and for two reasons. Here's the first reason why singleness is a good gift. It's for one, it's because marriage has a lot of troubles. Look at verse 28. He says this, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you from this. He's basically saying, there's a lot of headache in marriage. There is a lot of headache involved in marriage. I mean, think about it. Just for example, when you get married, your spouse's job may force you to move. And that's really inconvenient for you. My wife, uh, when we got married, and, and I was called up here to Boone to do RUF at App State, um, this meant, because she was connected to me, that she had to move, which means that she had to leave a lot of her best friends that were in Charlotte when we were living there at the time. This was hard for her. This was inconvenient for her. Or another example is, you know, when my wife Catherine was, was out, we were in Charlotte at the time, she was out driving around and uh, got in a car accident. And uh, she was okay, everyone was okay, it wasn't even her fault. But 
you know, the car was totaled, and we had to spend some of our money to, to pay for this new car. And so I'm thinking, here I am, you know, spending our money on something I had nothing to do with. Like, I, I wasn't the one in the accident, and yet we're dipping into our bank account to pay for this. It's inconvenient. It's hard. It's basically saying when you're committed to other people, there's, there's headache involved. There's trouble involved. And singleness frees you from a lot of that. But the second reason why singleness is a, is a good thing is because it allows you to serve the kingdom in an unrestrained way. I mean, this is what these, the verses 32 through 35 are all about. I'm not, I'm not going to reread it, but it's basically saying you are freed up to serve the Lord in an, in an unrestrained way. And when I was in college, I, I lived in the dorms for four years. Yes, four years. That explains a lot of my neuroses, I think. But I was in the, you know, the, the dorm that, that we were in, I mean, you know if, if, if you have this experience in your dorm where everybody kind of gets to know each other and people kind of come in and out of everybody's rooms after a while. And uh, it was on that floor that I got to know this guy, it was a few doors down, named Matt. Uh, different Matt, not me. Um, I got to know myself in the dorms. <laughs> But um, Matt, uh, Matt and I became uh, pretty good friends. He was an atheist, uh, and he was a homosexual. And, and we found ourselves staying up late into the night, having these amazing conversations about God and about faith and about science and about you know, uh, philosophy. And we'd be up till 3 o'clock in the morning having these discussions, you know, eating Taco Bell and just sort of doing the dorm thing. I hope to never be eating Taco Bell at 3 in the morning ever again, much less speaking to another human at 3 in the morning because I'm married now and, and I've, got a, I've got a 6 o'clock wake-up call when my baby you know, is screaming for my help. So if you see me awake at 3 in the morning, something's wrong with this picture. But basically the point is, is that my, my marriedness prevents me from kind of having those sorts of ministry opportunities now. I, I need to be home and have dinner with my family. I need to be putting my daughter to sleep at night. And so my marriedness, you know, prohibits me from having those kind of conversations like I did when I was single. The, the RUF guy before me, who some of you know, he was single when he was, when he was here at App, and he'd be hanging out in the dorms with students like way late into the night. And so, you know, picture this like 25-year-old man like sleeping on the couch in, in level, uh, you know, hanging out, with, hanging out with guys. And, I mean, his singleness afforded him ministry opportunities that my marriedness just kind of prevents me from. But basically what I want you to see is that this whole thing, the, the whole Bible assumes that there are trade-offs. You know, if you were here last week, we looked at Ephesians 5, and it said, that, it said marriage is amazing. And now here we are in 1 Corinthians 7, it's saying singleness is amazing. And basically all I want you to see is that there are unique challenges and there are unique blessings to each. There are trade-offs. Singleness is a gift. But if we're going to say that, if we're going to say that singleness is a gift, which I know for some of you say, I don't know if I'm still believing that that's a good thing. We have to understand that when, when, when there is a gift involved, that always presupposes a giver. That always presupposes who is the one that is giving it. And so I want you to look back at verse 7. It says, singleness is a gift from God. Who God is has to factor into this equation. Who God is in the nature of his character has to factor into this discussion. I want to read you a verse out of uh, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 32. It says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
I'll read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's what this is saying. If God is so good to you that he would be willing to give up his own son, Jesus, in your place, then he will not withhold good things from you. He will not withhold good things from you. Basically, if you want to know if God is committed to you, if you want to know if God is really for you, then look at the bloodiness of the cross. Because what that says is that God was willing to give up his son to die there instead of forcing you and I to die where we deserve, which is there. If God is willing to do that, this basically means he's willing to do anything for you. The cross is the historical demonstration of his commitment, of his goodness to you. And so if you put that verse and you put 1 Corinthians 7 together, what this says is that God cannot not be good to you. He cannot not be good to you. He does not give you crappy gifts. He does not give you gifts that are second rate. He is giving you gifts for your benefit, for your enjoyment. And that includes singleness. Singleness is the gift that he gives you right now for your benefit. But I know you think, I still don't believe it. We we don't want to trust that. We don't want to believe that this is a good gift. I want to read you this quote, and I've included it on your sheet. Uh, This is is from a woman named Paige uh, Benton Brown. Uh, It's a long quote. That's why I included it so you could read it along with me. She was uh, on staff with RUF for several years, and she was single for most of her 30s. She's married now. Um, But she wrote this article uh, when she was single, and I just want to read you uh, an excerpt from it, which I think is so good. It's so helpful. She says this, Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person. Not an attitude, but an attribute. She goes on, I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corningware. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. This means that if you have responded to his grace by faith, what this means for you is that his giving you the gift of singleness is for your good. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you being single right now is him being good to you, him caring for you, him being sweet to you? Because that's what this is saying. Now, before we wrap up, I want to just confront one more lie that we're tempted to believe, and it's, and it's this. At this point, we're tempted to believe the lie that goes like this. When I am satisfied in God alone, then he'll bring me someone special. As soon as I'm content, as soon as I'm satisfied in him alone, then he will bring me someone special. Some of you think that singleness is basically a testing phase. It's it's the holding room for the spiritually immature. And when you cross this threshold of spiritual contentment, then he'll get you what you want, which is a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. 
You know, when I, when I was in college, my freshman year of college, I began to believe and to say things like, I think that I have the permanent gift of singleness, and uh, uh, I'm just going to serve Jesus. I'm only going to date Jesus right now, is what I said. And basically what I was doing was um, trying to get God to think. I was basically trying to trick God that um, if he can see me being completely content, I only want to serve Jesus, then he'll say, oh... He seems content, so I'm going to give him what he really wants, which is a girlfriend. It's, I was trying to do reverse psychology with God, and, um, and, and it didn't work. You can't trick God, by the way. But the thought process was, if I give up the one thing that I really want, if I give up the one thing that I really want, then he will love me more, and then he'll want to give me what I really want. And, and I know that some of you think the same thing. Some of you are right now working to earn God's favor. And so, and so what you're doing is you are working yourself with uh, tons of spiritual activity, being a spiritual martyr, hoping that he sees you and is impressed with you enough to then give you the, the gift that you want. That if you can just sort of convince him and maybe everybody else that I don't really want marriage, I don't want to date anybody, I only want to serve him, then that will somehow fool him into thinking that you've passed some test that doesn't even exist so that he will give you something. It is a lie. It's a lie. And you have to say this whole framework of thinking is completely antithetical to the gospel. The gospel of grace. God never gives you gifts on the basis of your spiritual performance. That's called legalism. That that is opposed to grace and mercy. That, That turns this transaction with God into a business transaction where I do such and such for him and then he now is obligated to do such and such for me. But you just, have to, you just have to see that what is so dark and delusional about this lie is that the assumption is, is that God withholds good things from you. That God really does withhold good things. Where you look at him and say, you really don't give good gifts, God, but maybe if I jump through enough hoops to impress you, then maybe you'll you know, dig deep into your treasure chest and pull out something really good, which would be marriage or a boyfriend or girlfriend for me. That's not the gospel. And thank goodness it's not. It's opposed to grace. But I want to wrap up here, and I'll finish with this. Uh, there's an older pastor, a friend of mine, who's a bit of a mentor to me. And uh, he just recently uh, was spending some time with an elderly man in his church. This is a member in his church, uh, an elderly man, and he sat down and I guess was chatting with him. And uh, this older man uh, is, is caring for his wife, who currently suffers from dementia. And so he was telling my pastor, he was telling his pastor, my friend, uh, about their evening ritual. And he says that he, uh, you know, uh, bathes his wife and then, you know, dresses her in her pajamas and puts her down to bed. And they've been married for 61 years now. And the wife is, you know, for, far enough along into her uh, dementia where she's, you know, doesn't really recognize him, sees him as a friendly face. And uh, he, he was telling uh, his pastor, um, about their evening ritual, you know, I guess uh, a week or so ago. And he was, basically, he was saying, uh, you know, I, I had dressed her, I was putting her down to bed, and she looked up at me and said, where are you going to sleep? You know, he, he, and he smiles and he says, oh, right beside you, honey. And she goes, oh, my husband is not going to like that. <laughs> 
And that's a, that's, a, that's a funny moment, but that's also a pretty heavy moment. Because he was telling uh, his pastor, because it was at that moment that he realized that the connection between his care for her and, and her realization of who he was uh, was severed. That she didn't realize that it was her husband that was caring for her in these ways. And the thing that's so pregnant about that image is that that just mirrors back to us the way that we think about God, isn't it? Because, because he comes to us out of pure grace, pursuing us and forgiving us and caring for us and giving us gifts that a father would, that a husband would, and we don't recognize them. We don't recognize them. In fact, we don't even recognize that he's caring for us. We actually think that he's trying to harm us and trying to withhold good things from us. But of course, the beauty of the gospel is that even when we don't recognize his grace, even when we don't recognize his gifts and his care for us, that doesn't mean that he stops caring, right? I mean, just like the husband who, even though his wife didn't recognize him, he was going to do the same thing the next day. And the next day, he was going to bathe her and dress her and put her down. He's going to continue to care for her, even though she didn't recognize him. That's the same way that God works. Even when we don't recognize his grace and his gifts and his goodness and the way that he cares for us, he is still caring for us. Our appreciation of his gifts does not jeopardize his willingness to continue to care for us. And so what I want to say for those of you in the room, it it does not matter if you identify yourself as a Christian or not. The invitation that this passage holds out for you is to respond to his goodness, to respond to his goodness by faith. Will you come to him by faith and recognize his care and his goodness and his grace for you? That's the invitation. Pray with me. Father, it really is hard to believe that um, something like a life of singleness could be your care and your goodness to us. But I I would ask that you would give us confidence in who you are and your commitment to us. Give us eyes to see the cross and to look through the lens of the cross to our circumstances instead of looking through the lens of our circumstances to the cross. Give us confidence in your goodness and in your commitment to us. And we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.